2: From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Durian is pungent and beloved. Common in Singapore, it's hard to harvest and to cut open, but for food writer Jennifer Wong, the smell elicits an undeniable longing for both the fruit itself and the cultural remembrance it represents. Whether it's stinky tofu, roasted grasshoppers, or chicken feet, many cultures embrace foods that might be startling to people from the outside. So how do these seemingly unusual ingredients become delicacies? That's what we'll be talking about with KQED Food Editor Luke Side. That's right, it's time for another edition of All You Can Eat, our regular series on the various food cultures. We're talking unusual foods after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Allow me to extol the virtues of lacoche, a corn fungus that looks kind of like eyeballs and that's been eaten by the indigenous peoples of what is now Mexico for a long time. I don't remember the first time I had it, but I do remember when I realized, oh man, this is so good. I was 15 and at a restaurant with my family in Mexico City for a wedding, and someone ordered queso fundido with lacoche and dipping the handmade tortillas in there. It was one of my life's great culinary moments. Clearly, since I'm remembering it, you know, 26 years later, there was something about the earthy, kind of maybe peppery flavor infusing the cheese with the fresh corn. Trust me, this ingredient is amazing. But like many others across cultures, if I showed it to you or you just read the description of corn smut, it might not sound exactly appetizing. Like, blue cheese? Come on. So for today's All You Can Eat, we thought we'd dig into these ingredients that are beloved in a culture, but perhaps misunderstood outside of it. We're joined this morning first, as always, by Luke Sai, food editor with KQED Arts and Culture. Thanks so much, Alexis. And we're joined by Jennifer Wong, author of the article, A Bay Area Love Letter to Durian, published on KQED Arts and Culture. Welcome, Jennifer.
3: Thanks so much, Alexis.
2: So your piece really inspired this show. Talk to us a little bit about durian and sort of how people see this food and what how you see it.
3: Yeah. Durian, I think people don't see it first. They smell it first. <laughs> mm-hmm. So durian has what I would describe as quite a pungent smell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wouldn't say necessarily pungent in a good or a bad way. It's really up to the person. It just is.
2: Yeah. Yes.
3: <laughs> and... The way it looks is it's a huge spiky ball. I describe it as you know looking somewhat like a medieval weapon, and when you open it up inside of it, there are little seeds that are surrounded by this yellow, fleshy, fruity, creamy, custardy texture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very strange fruit, especially if you're seeing it for the first time
2: yeah and what's it what does it actually taste like when you taste? durian i know there's multiple varieties and other things but you know let's say you just go into a grocery store um, that has it somewhere here in the bay area and you taste it like what what do you think people would be thinking
3: the first time i had it personally i would describe it as almost like a custard like Mm. a flan or something you know with a bright yellow color color from eggs and It kind of, it can range in flavor from things that are bitter to sweet to oniony, I've heard it described as, as Mm -hmm. well. It it ranges, is how I'd like to describe it, kind of the way that coffee or wine or chocolate ranges. That durians really take on the flavor of the earth that they're grown in. Mm.
2: And this food, it has, you know, not just a sort of culinary meaning for you, but also like a, a cultural and familial uh, meaning?
3: Yes, absolutely. The tie for me is through my father, who is Singaporean. He immigrated here in 1970. And for me, I didn't know that durian was a Singaporean or Malaysian or Southeast Asian fruit. I always identified it as Chinese, and I always identified myself as Chinese-American, I didn't really know much about my Singaporean culture, and durian was the gateway to that culture for me.
2: Oh, wow! Tell tell us more. Like, have you you've had it in both places? Like, what's it like in Singapore versus here?
3: Yeah, so here I would say, in general, what you're getting is typically like a standard large Thai durian. It's been pre-frozen and then defrosted, so it's lost some of that flavor. I think people would still call it pungent, especially if they're smelling it or tasting it for the first time. But here, you know, when you've had durian in Southeast Asia, it just doesn't compare. (laughs) In Southeast Asia, there are so many varietals, just dozens and dozens. Like if you look it up on Wikipedia, it lists all the different varieties that you can get. And each one can be customized essentially to the flavor profile that you like. So it's just it's such a wild difference between the two places
2: you know and the the big theme of your essay is how some of these foods can really just transmit culture and really feelings of belonging like how does durian do that for you
3: for me definitely via family first Mm -hmm. when we have durian we almost always have it with a group of family because the durians are large you I mean, it's impressive if you can eat an entire durian by yourself, but you probably (laughs) feel really full and kind of sick after. And so when you buy a durian, you have it with your family. Oftentimes you have it near your home, especially in Singapore, because you can't really travel with it unless you have a car or if you want to be sneaky and potentially get fined. And other ways for me that it ties me to other people is that... If I introduce someone to it or if I find someone who loves durian too, that's just so exciting to me. That's an instant connection where we're like, oh, we like this thing. It's really smelly, uh, but we find it delicious and we love it. And that just makes the connection stronger, I think, instantly.
2: We're talking about unusual or funky foods or ingredients that might seem uh, unappetizing to outsiders but are Really beloved as well. Joined by Jennifer Wong, author of the article A Bay Area Love Letter to Durian, published on KQED Arts and Culture. Also joined this morning by Luke Sai. as always. Uh, we would love to hear from you. I mean, what are some funky foods you love and why? You know, whether it's durian or blue cheese or stinky tofu. Um, and here's one I'm interested in, too. If you came to the U.S. from somewhere else, What's something that's commonly eaten here that you still can't quite get over? You know, buttermilk, hot dogs, bloomin' onions, I don't know what it is. You can give us a call. The number is 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786. You can email these stories to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. One listener has already gotten an early jump said, I grew up eating menudo, a soup made with beef tripe, on Sundays with my family and have always loved it. For many Mexican families, eating menudo is a weekend ritual that involves sitting down, personalizing your bowl with your favorite topping, slowing down to eat and enjoy it. But I have to say the texture of the meat takes some getting used to. My husband, who also grew up in a Mexican family, was grossed out by menudo as a kid and refused to eat it until one time he was hungover as an adult and now he loves it. I have a feeling that might be a somewhat common story, <laughs> Luke. Tsai, um Talk to me about. Um, do you have durian feelings first before we get to a, a, your food? I I love durian. Um, I did not necessarily
4: grow up with it. You know, um, I think uh, you know it, it. It it was familiar to me. You know, uh, my family's uh, from China and Taiwan. Um, And so I had had it a few times, but it wasn't like a regular thing. Um, But, yeah, I I love it. You know, it's it's um, it's something like if there's a dessert that's durian flavored on a menu anywhere, I'll
2: definitely order it. (laughs) Oh, Interesting. Um, And what about do you have a food that is sort of is your durian, you know, something that really kind of feels like it connects you to your culture or a culture in a certain way?
4: Of course, I think, Alexis, you probably know what I'm going to say already. (laughs) Um, But you you mentioned at the top of the hour, stinky tofu, um, which those who aren't familiar, it's tofu that has been marinated for a number of weeks or even months in a kind of brine um, that's made out of vegetables and sometimes shrimp heads that have fermented uh, to the point That they start uh, decomposing. And so, like, the process, I I will be honest, is like a little bit gross looking. (laughs) Um, But what you wind up with are these blocks of tofu that, you know, in many ways look like regular tofu, except for when you cut them open, they have these pock marks just from that fermentation process. Um, And it has this, uh, you know, it's baked into the name, right? It's called stinky (laughs) tofu. And that is because it is stinky, you know, just to be honest about it. It has this really ripe, pungent smell. Um, and, you know, people have likened it to garbage. People have likened it to like a a, ch- a, a baby's poo. You know, the, like there have been a lot of comparisons that have been made. Um, for me, um, it's 100% connected to family trips that I took mm-hmm. growing up to night markets in Taiwan and you, I first experienced it almost like a test of bravery you know where someone introduces it to you um as a sort of test of how daring you are or maybe like how authentically taiwanese you are mm. um but you know before long I just really loved it you know um it the taste it I mean it has that smell but the taste is everything it's funky savory a little bit tangy it's got like super um umami um and it's like as deep and complex as any sort of ripe unpasteurized cheese that you might get in france or something like that but it kind of has this really negative um reputation i think especially um outside of you know taiwan you know and especially here in western countries people sort of turn their nose at it. Um, but, you know, for me, that that is, you know, that's my culture. <laughs> that's
2: what... yeah. um, Jennifer Wong, do you have any relationship to stinky tofu?
3: I have tried it. Uh, there's a couple of restaurants where you can get it in San Francisco. One that I can think of as Tawan Cafe in the Richmond District. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also a hot pot restaurant where you can get it as well. And, you know, when someone orders it because you can smell it immediately and i I love luke's comparison to it being like you know a cheese a smelly cheese Mm -hmm. because it's in in the same vein as even durian all all three of them are you know kind of smelly but have that custardy creamy texture and complex flavor all three of them and so i remember the one time i've had stinky tofu that i liked it but it, it it can be difficult to get past the smell
2: Yeah, yeah. Also, if someone wants to get durian, like they've heard your description and they're like, oh, man, I really want to try this. Where would you recommend?
3: I think the easiest place to get it actually is probably at a large grocery store. So Costco has it. H Mart has it. If you want, you can be a little adventurous and go to a small mom and pop shop and you can get a whole durian as well. In general, I think you're supposed to choose ones that are round Hmm. and kind of small that's what I've been told by my father.
2: All right. Searching in H Mart. All right. We're talking about unusual or funky foods or ingredients that might seem unappetizing, but are beloved. Joined by Jennifer Wong, author of the article, A Bay Area Love Letter to Durian, published on KQED Arts. And Luke Sai, food editor for KQED Arts. I'm Alexis Madrig. We're going to get to a bunch of your calls right after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madroul. We're talking funky foods and ingredients that are beloved uh, within particular cultures. Joined by Luke Tsai, food editor with KQED Arts and Culture, and Jennifer Wong, author of the article, A Bay Area Love Letter to Durian. Let's get uh, some callers going here. Um, Karin, welcome to the show in Oakland.
6: Yes, I just had a funny Bay Area story about funky foods also. I grew up in the American South where we eat what we call chitlins and hog moths, mm-hmm. and they smell horrible. Chitlins are pig intestines and the hog moths are the pig stomach. And it's got a bit of a um, so- social economical conversation as many folks in the South are starting to denounce eating chitlins because of the smell. But I was so surprised to be dining at an East Oakland dim sum restaurant in Chinatown and encountering that flavor and not really knowing what I was eating, <laughs> only to find out that it was pig intestines. I recognized it, but of course, it's called something different. And then on another occasion, I was at a, mo- a Mexican mole restaurant in Emeryville and also encountered um what I recognized to be hogma and. Um, Chitlin tacos so I thought that was just a cool narrative about how around the world we're still eating all parts of the animal and it's showing up in different ways than I was even familiar with
2: yeah that is an exceptionally Bay Area story (laughs) that's like in the all star yeah. yeah oh go ahead
6: I feel like it's such a Bay Area story because that's what the Bay is about—the diversity of all of the people. Yet we see that we're really at the core, all the same.
2: Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much, um, Luke. Do you um, do you have a relationship to uh, to Chitlins or Hogmas or, or any of their associated uh, foods and other cultures?
4: I, I love them. Um, I think you know. I think when we're talking about funky foods, you know, you can sort of put them into different categories, right? So I think. There's like that stinky, pungent category of which, you know, durian and stinky tofu, which we've already talked about, are sort of like Hall of Fame examples. Um, But then there are foods that like come from, um, I don't know how, you know, like an indelicate part of an animal, you know, that people might perceive as being um, either smelly or unsanitary. So I think, you know, that's like a lot of the awful cuts, um, things like, uh, you know, intestines um, that 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 the caller spoke of, testicles, um, pig's feet, chicken feet, things like that. Um, so I think that's like a whole other category and and by and large, um, I think people who eat those like cultures who eat those cuts of meat, they find ways to make them delicious for, for sure, or else they wouldn't be eating them um and so uh, yeah, i I like almost all of those types of types of foods, yeah,
2: um, Jennifer Wong, before we get too far away from Durian, there's a couple of <laughs> durian comments coming in. Uh, Miguel writes, Durian is best chilled with brandy, really good brandy. Dad and I always had these two after dinner. Such a treat. and Sarah writes. I consider myself an adventurous eater, but durian is the only food that has literally made me wretch. It tastes to me like a cross between pineapple flowers and fermented onions that have been in the garbage disposal too long. How can I redeem this first experience? Like how can I make durian better for myself?
3: That's a great question, and my my first suggestion is unfortunately an expensive one. I think you could try going to Year of the Durian in which you could get a whole package of all different types of durian and really figure out the durian that works for you because they all taste so different. You may have had one that wasn't great. Even between each seed within each section of the durian, they're going to all taste different. Huh. Yeah. So I feel like that's a great way of doing it. Or you just, you know, you got to take a trip to Southeast Asia and (laughs) get durian that way. I'm sorry it's so expensive to do, but... That's, That's my also recommendation.
2: <laughs> year of the durian is like a, it's like a website. It's year of the So just, just so you know that you can find it there. Uh, um,
7: oh, Alexis, go ahead.
4: I I just wanted to jump in and also, and just say like, I don't think there's any moral dimension <laughs> to liking or disliking a certain food, you know? And I think, you know, as much as I evangelize about stinky tofu, like it's okay if, if you try it and it's like not your thing Um, I think the broader problem is when uh, it's off the bat sort of seen as Mm. like disgusting or how can you eat that? You know, um, I remember seeing Stinky Tofu on Andrew Zimmern's show, uh, Bizarre Foods, and that really radicalized me, you know, because <laughs> on the one hand, you're happy just to see any representation of your food culture in mainstream media. And but on the other hand, like his reaction and the overall framing was just so disappointing. I mean, he just he couldn't he couldn't even get a mouthful down. And I was just mm. like, come on you know come on man um and it's not that he didn't like it but it was just like the framing of the show was like this is a weird right.
2: performance of disgust <laughs> can, yeah
4: can i jump
3: I- in on that too yeah yeah please I, do the, in an episode with Andrew Zimmern he put a whole seed of durian into his mouth and he gagged and i my entire family was 100% offended <laughs> and just so angry and disgusted with him we were so just so disappointed.
2: Yeah. I mean, it because you thought he, t- tell me why.
3: I think he just didn't even really give it a chance. I think I couldn't tell if he actually didn't like it, but even after sticking that whole seed of durian into his mouth, he didn't want to try it again. Mm. And so, you know, it was just strange because he's eaten so many quote unquote weird foods and for durian to be, put into your mouth and then spit out, it just feels terrible that Mm. someone would try to eat something and spit it out. I think, you know, to Luke's point, if you're going to try the food, that's great. If you can get it down into your stomach, that's awesome. And if you don't like it, that's okay. But to spit it out, I don't know, just Uh, terrible. (laughs)
2: Let's go. Let's bring another call. Uh, Deb in San Jose. Welcome.
8: Hi, how are you doing?
2: Hey, doing well, Deb? What's your story?
8: Uh, I love dinuguan. Hmm. I'm Ta- Filipino Japanese, and dinuguan is kind of a, I would say, blood sausage and tripe, vinegar, and green chili stew. That it's a favorite Filipino food.
2: Wow! And can you describe what it tastes like, or?
8: Yeah, it's kind of very livery, very rich. Um, it's it's kind of pungent. It's got, a, as I said, kind of a sour vinegar taste, mm-hmm. and it's delicious. I love it. Hmm.
2: Do you have, um, you know, particular memories that are sort of anchor the love for the food?
8: I think because whenever my family would go over to another Filipino family's house, and it was a big stuff any kind of, uh, I don't know, big gathering. Somebody would make dinuguan, and they'd make fun of it because people used to call it the chocolate meat because it was very dark in color. Mm. And um, then you'd mix it with rice, and uh, everybody would enjoy it. But a lot of people who aren't raised with it kind of go, ew, that is disgusting, just looking at it.
2: Yuck. Do little kids get into it, though? Like, and is it the sort of thing where there's, like, you know, some little kids are like, yum. You know, I, I feel like certain moles are like this. You know, some kids just immediately are into it, and other kids, you know, take some time.
8: Exactly, because it's got a very strong flavor. So I think um, with little kids' palates, because their taste buds are so sensitive, the minute you, it hits your taste buds, it's like, whoa, this yeah. is something. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. And that was, um, Diniguan. Is that what it's called? Dinaguan. Diniguan. Great. Thank you so much, Deb. Really appreciate that, uh, that call. Luke, do you, um, do you have any experience with this food? Or you...
4: Yeah, I like it. You know, I think, um, there are, uh, and I think, Alexis, we were talking about this a little bit before the show started, there are various foods that are made with different, uh, animal blood, you know, especially pork Mm -hmm. blood. Um, and I think, um, it's definitely an acquired taste. You know, I personally really love the version that you get um, at a lot of, like, Vietnamese restaurants. Like, they turn it into, like, a little cubes um, that they'll put in your bun bo way or some of the other soups that they serve. Um, and it does add this sort of very minerally kind of richness to it. And, um, you know, I, I guess you just don't necessarily think too much about where it comes from, um, <laughs> but the taste is is great. <laughs>
2: That's always, yeah, I remember having some uh, blood sausage in, in Spain at, like, a roadside place and thought it was so delicious and then got in my head about, like, what I was eating and um, couldn't eat any more of it. Um, one listener uh, writes, yeah, morcilla. exactly. One of my uh, producers is, is noting the name. Um, one of the uh, listeners writes in to say, My German-born and raised father was a big fan of Liederkranz and Limburger cheese. The stinkier and smellier, the better. It stinks and smells so bad, I've never had the nerve to try it, even though I know it might be great. One time, my father ate the cheese and then remembered he had a dentist appointment, so he called the dentist and asked if he would like to reschedule the appointment. The dentist appreciated my father's thoughtfulness but said, No, come in. Um, that's a great story, um, Jennifer Wong. Do you have a particular relationship to you know any of those really um, pungent, smelly, you know, French and, and German cheeses?
3: I love them all. Mm-hmm. I I love cheese, mm-hmm. and if if you put one in front of me, even if it's stinky, even if it looks weird, if it's got different colors on the rind, I, I will eat it. I will also eat the rind. That's my relationship to cheese. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Oh, man. Uh, Luke, are you also you're also a stinky cheese fan? I
3: I
4: am. And, you know, the one thing that this makes me think of, too, is that uh, though, you know, there are definitely people who may not be fond of stinky cheese. I think culturally speaking, cheese like stinky cheese is is relatively on the acceptable side as far as mm-hmm. social norms in the US and and is even slightly associated with sort of like high society or like gourmet culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think uh, it just makes me think about how so much of this is culturally prescribed, like there's nothing inherent about foods necessarily, that makes them disgusting or, uh, or conversely delicious, you know, so much of that is how we're socialized. And I just always think of the story of the first time my grandfather uh, moved to the US to stay with us when I was a kid. Um, And, you know, we talk about all these like, stinky pungent foods from Taiwan. And I remember the first time he came to the US, uh, we we were at like a church potluck, and someone had brought pizza, and his first time eating pizza. He literally took a bite and just threw up. And it was like the most disgusting thing that he had even e- ever eaten because he'd never thought to eat something like that in his whole life. Um, so I always just think of that in terms of like what 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 is disgusting, what is gross, and how much of that is totally just culturally prescribed.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think I I once heard Jose Andres, like, describe, like, what a hamburger was, like, outside of, the, you know, and he was talking about the sweetness. For him, it was a, a love letter, but, you know, he was talking about, you know, the char of the meat and the sweetness of the thing. And, like, of course, you know, when you come up with a food, you don't necessarily break it down into its components in that way, you know, because uh, it was just, you know, so much a part of, of uh Uh, of life in in different places with these different foods. Um, Let's go to uh, Baloo in San Francisco. Welcome, Baloo.
9: Hi, uh, thank you for taking my call. So this is a comment about how my friends would challenge me to eat these things that are considered to be, you know, stinky or funky. Uh, Both the times I've loved them. Uh, So this one's my experience eating stinky tofu with duck blood in a Taiwanese night market. I was supposed to, you know, react weirdly to it, but it was like love it first bite. It was delicious, and I really never understood why tofu had such a bad reputation.
2: <laughs> uh, Did you have experience with some other foods that you could compare it to, or was it like a totally novel experience and you just loved the taste?
9: It was a novel experience, but I really loved the taste. It was probably because I had it in like a, one of the considered one of the best. Stands in a Taiwanese night market, probably that, and I really loved it immediately. And a similar experience with uh, chicken feet. I was supposed huh. to not like them, but I really loved them. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's cool. Hey, thank you so much, uh, Balu. Really, um, I I feel you on that experience. Thank you for sharing that. I want to add a um, couple other voices to the conversation, real quick here. Monica Martinez is the founder and CEO of Don Buguito, a San Francisco company that makes protein snacks from Edible Insects. Welcome, Monica. Oh, hi. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for joining us. We also have Javier Cabral, uh, editor with LA Taco, which is an independent local news and culture site, and associate producer for the amazing series Taco Chronicles on Netflix. Thanks for joining us, Javier. Hey, what's up? Good morning. Hey, good morning. Um, Monica, let's start with you. I feel like of the foods that are somewhat unusual, it feels like insects are kind of easy, but maybe that's just me. I think they're just delicious on their own. Um, Is that what you find with people, or is it difficult for people to make the leap into eating insects?
10: (laughs) You know what? I was like, uh, I joined the conversation when you guys were talking about the cheese and thing, and I immediately thought about the Sicilian cheese with with maggots. Uh, You know? And then it, it has a thing also, like, i mean on my perception and perspective they are delicious but obviously to probably 80 percent of the world who don't eat insects um insects are kind of gross um and then they have this association you know they like they're steady and then squishy and slimy and and a lot of people don't know what the flavor is so immediately they, they have this idea of like no it's a gross thing, mm-hmm. but culturally, also, he's talking about cultural. Like, you know, you didn't grow up in a country where, you know, you, you have here or seen other people eating insects. It's definitely uh, a hard food to eat or to yeah. open up. So, um, what,
2: Monica, what are the sort of like preparations that you make of these insects that sort of help people, you know, cross the line into eating insects? <laughs>
10: Yeah, so we have – it's been definitely uh, well thought about, like, you know, we we are aware – I've, you know, been aware that most people when they try insects is going to be the first time, so that experience has to be very positive if we want to continue, right, having people open up their minds about edible insects. So I've been working really hard to get the insects not to be soft or slimy or juicy, (laughs) <laughs> so we tossed our insects. So our insects are crunchy, are like close to uh, corn nuts. Usually tell them that, that the flavor are close to nuts and seeds, and they taste probably like pretzels, chocolate-covered pretzels or corn nuts. of so our best-seller product is the chocolate-covered crickets and mm. the chili lime crickets. Um, so, yeah, the chocolate-covered crickets is a good kind of getaway for people to like, I don't want to see the insects. <laughs> but once, you know, they, they pop their, their little bowl of chocolate. Uh, and then the insect, is the, the whole cricket is inside there. And like, you know, but then they're like, oh, it doesn't taste like an insect. It's like more like a Rice Krispie treat. So that opens up mm-hmm. like a whole world of, okay, you, you, you're you still alive. You, you didn't die.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love um, that. Yeah. Monica Martinez, founder and CEO of Don Bogito, a San Francisco company that makes protein snacks um, from edible insects. You can go check them out. Thank you so much for for joining us, Monica.
10: Yeah, thank you for having me.
2: One listener writes in to say, I used to live in West Africa, and after the first rain, swarms of big flying ants would come out. After dark, we'd turn on lights to attract them, and then we'd sweep them into a pot of water to drown them. Then we'd swish them around to remove the wing, and then toast them up and eat them in a bowl with salt as a snack. Reminded me of toasted pumpkin seeds. Delicious. We're talking about unusual or funky foods or ingredients that are beloved. Joined by Luke Tsai, food editor with KQED Arts and Culture, Jennifer Wong, author of the article, A Bay Area Love Letter to Durian, published on KQED, and Javier Cabral, editor at LA taco and associate producer for the taco chronicles on Netflix. We'll get to more of your calls and comments when we come back from our break.
0: Support for forum comes from San Francisco opera.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about unusual funky foods with Luke Sai, food editor with KQED Arts. Of course, this is All You Can Eat, our regular series on Bay Area food cultures. Also joined by Jennifer Wong, who published a story on KQED, a Bay Area love letter to Durian. Google that. Check it out. It's a really great story about connecting with your culture and your family through food. Earlier, we were joined by Monica Martinez, founder and CEO of Don Boguito, which is a San Francisco company that makes edible insect snacks. And we're joined by Javier Cabral, editor at L.A. Taco. Um, Javier, I'm going to come to you in one sec, but I have to read this comment from Kimberly. I'm preparing myself. As was Wisconsinite, cannibal sandwiches, which consist of raw ground beef, onions, and white bread. I have memories of my grandma making them as a kid and always trying to make me try it. To this day, I still can't stomach trying it, but I love the conversation starter it gives me now that I live in California. Has anybody had a quote-unquote cannibal sandwich? Okay, I have no takers. (laughs) Can't say that I'm running out to try a cannibal sandwich, but to your point, you know, eating raw beef is considered a delicacy in different ways in different places. Um, Javier, let's talk a little bit about some um, of your favorite unusual or, or, or funky foods. What do you got?
7: Well, I mean, um, if you want to talk about like raw beef, actually, in uh, in Michoacan, which is in uh, South Central Mexico, it's a it's a state that doesn't get as much love as other states, but you know they did uh, give to the world um, carnitas. But they actually have a tradition there of they call it carne apache, and it and it's a tostada that you eat. Um, it's essentially a beef ceviche, but depending on how. <laughs> uh like you know yes and it's made with raw kind of shaved beef um and it's it's a lesser known dish from mexico that's really hard to find i mean even here in la you know the best place in the country for tacos it's really hard to find um but you know it's it there's it's not i mean you know it's it's cured beef i guess because it's it's in lime juice right yeah
2: is that like beef carpaccio right that kind of works like that right
7: yeah, but again, but like what's Imagine like beef ceviche, imagine like ceviche and then you take a bite and it's a little heftier, maybe a little more uh bovine bovine, you know, uh, um it's uh, it's 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 good though, you know, cuz once you add like the avocado and like the salsa and um mm-hmm. you know the crunch, the flakiness of the, of the of the tostada it all comes together in a nice yeah. way.
2: How about other uh examples of tacos that maybe, you know, are, are slightly more common than that? Well, you know, whenever
7: whenever someone asks me like, "What's my favorite taco?" or like, you know, they ask me if I can take them on a taco crawl, I, my brain registers all these different, you know, almost like equations and and you know, there there are different levels of eating tacos. So if you're if you're you know if you're in there's a big demographic that you know they're going to order carne asada no matter what. But you know, if you're a little more adventurous, if you're a little more you know down for whatever. I will take them to, you know, have a a slightly more deeper cuts of tacos and uh, where, you know, where I say they're more like boss level tacos or they're more, it's like the final (laughs) boss of of the taco kingdom. uh, um, So for those, I, know, I, I take them to go have uh, tacos de cabeza um, or tacos de uh, de labio, um, which is our beef lip tacos. Mm, Okay. I haven't, I've had cabeza, but I've never had labios. Wow. Well, if you if you've had cabeza, you've probably had labio because cabeza is essentially just scraped beef head, and it depending and it depends on on a taquero's personal preference of what type of different head cuts uh, in the and I'm sorry, what kind of of different beef cuts in the head they wanna um, they wanna use it for. So you know, sometimes you order cabeza, and if you get something that 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 that's a little crunchy, you may be chewing on like a beef eyeball. Wow. Yeah.
2: Oh man. That's it. I'm actually, I'm, I'm interested. There's something about the other components, I feel like, of tacos that like might make it a little bit easier to kind of stretch your palate with some of these more unusual meats, though. Like you were saying, you know, the salsa of the other components.
7: Yeah, I mean, it's, it, that's kind of like the the beautiful thing about tacos, you know, they're, they're the great equalizer, it doesn't matter how much money you make, um, or where you come from, you know, you're, the average person is going to, you know, want to know where the best tacos are. And, you know, you have to follow it, you know, tacos are are not, are not, are also subject to economy. And, you know, I'm sure we've all seen the spike in prices in beef tongue. I mean, there was a time when lengua, when tacos de lengua, when beef tongue tacos were were really uh, affordable and they were kind of considered like an off cut. And, 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 you know, I call it like the the, the gateway into the all fall world, um, <laughs> but you know, they got really expensive um, beef tongue got to the price of like ribeye at some point, or even carne asada. So that's where beef lips come in. Because if I were to give you a blind taste test, you would not know the difference between beef
2: tongue and beef lips because the texture is so similar. Huh. So interesting. A um, couple comments coming in um, and I'm going to, I'm going to come to you, uh, Jennifer, at the end of this um aksal says i'm from kazakhstan and we can't live without horse meat that is the food i miss most in the bay area apparently eating a horse is illegal here scott writes in to say in college i would get that scrunched up nose look from people while i was eating my lunch jila cactus corn fungus jila, and my dessert years later while teaching english in rural japan people asked what is this peanut cream that i put on everything peanut butter I had quite a learning curve with natto, fermented soybeans, and anko, sweet beans, and inago, grasshopper, but learned to love them all, how I miss Japanese food, but with lots of chili powder. And Jennifer, you know, I, I wanted to get your perspective, you know, on some of these foods, you know, there's a kind of classic uh, story of second generation immigrant kids going to school with some kind of lunch and the other kids like looking funny. Was that your experience or did you have a, a different one?
3: To be honest, I didn't have that experience, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized I went to a pretty diverse school. It had a very strong Asian culture, and so surprisingly, I didn't have that experience. But in fairness, I probably didn't bring the stinkiest foods to lunchtime. Most of the time, I had them at home. Mm -hmm. I have a pretty funny story from my cousin about cultural foods. Um, My cousin's kids, they're mixed race. And so they're uh, part Chinese. And one of them was asking, why do we have rice with everything? And so my cousin said, well, it's because we're Asian. And then his wife, uh, who is my cousin's child's stepmom, she mm-hmm. was like, I'm white. Guess what we had with every meal? And he thought about it for a little bit and he said, mayonnaise? <laughs> <laughs> and when you think about it, mayonnaise is... It's a weird food, right? But somehow it's totally accepted. You put it on everything if you're in the States. And, you know, I no one turns up their nose at that. They don't make faces during lunch times, But you see it in kids' lunches all the time here.
2: Yeah, mayonnaise is one of those things when you make it for the first time, you're sort of like, ah. Oh, at least I was. I was like, huh, that's how you do it. <laughs> um, let's bring in uh, Michelle in Marin. Welcome.
6: Hi, um, listening to your discussion reminded me of uh, when I was in my 20s. I went to the University of Hawaii and and so lived there. And I've always liked fishy flavors. Um, and so I discovered dried cuttlefish, which is really has a really strong fish flavor. Um, and when you open the bag, it you know other people are going to be able to smell it. And it's so it's a little different looking. Um, and it's it's dried, and so it's kind of like eating jerky. So you're kind of gnawing on it. For a bit. And um, people would always, you know, ah, oh, that smells so awful. And then just in general, whenever anybody says, oh, I can't eat that, it smells fishy. I'm like, yeah, that's what I like about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's my memory of... of uh, yeah. Michelle, I've had to grow. I've
2: had to I'm grow into, to. The fishy, into the fishy foods. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I'm really... I haven't reached, um, you know, the, the king level uh, fishiness yet. I don't think I could just gnaw on, on dried cuttlefish. I'm still working on like gefilte fish, you know, uh, my wife's family's Jewish. And we, when that comes out during Passover, I'm always like, okay, now I make a very solid effort to get through a little bit of this, you know, um, Luke or Jennifer, have you ever had, uh, dried cuttlefish or cuttlefish at all?
3: yes I I grew up eating dried cuttlefish and I I am a huge fan of all things super fishy
4: mm-hmm. Luke yeah, definitely um c- dried cuttlefish, dried squid you know I think uh throughout a lot of parts of Asia this is just like a normal like um it's it I guess I guess it, it depends on your your um, upbring right like my my kids will eat that. Um, And it's just that's just like normal (laughs) for them Mm because we've just had it around the house, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think like that's that's like a childhood snack for a lot of folks (laughs) in Asia, you know. So, Mm -hmm. uh,
2: Alexis, you got to really step up your game. Got to step up my game. (laughs) Definitely got to step up my game. I know. I know. I mean, I couldn't even eat like basic salmon, you know, until I was in my late 20s. So I am. you all have palates that far exceed my own. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's bring in uh, Camila from Sebastopol. Welcome.
8: Hi. Um, yeah, thanks for taking me, and uh, I'm really appreciating this topic. I had a question that was a little scientific. Um, and just in terms of different people's palates, I have some family members that have really intense gag reflexes. Um, I was a really picky eater, and I just noticed that some of your guests tend to have this broad palate mm-hmm. attracted to stinky cheeses, bold flavors. Is there any basis for different people's palates being able to mm. be attracted to some of these flavors? And I'm just curious. Uh, I don't know if, no, if no, that's no. too scientific for the panel, but yeah, love to hear your thoughts. I
2: don't know, yeah. I mean, I, I, Luke, I'd love to hear you, uh, just um, before we go to play, just a little bit on you know how you think about palate and palate evolution, particularly given that you're a food critic, so you have to— Really develop that, right? Yeah. And I think, you know,
4: I mean, there is a level where it is just a personal thing, you know? And I think um, that you can't necessarily always control your response to certain foods. And, but, but it's complicated, right? Like, I think your background and how you grew up and your associations that you have with different things all factor into that. I think there are scientists who actually study like the science of disgust, you know, and so I think there are certain like evolutionary aspects to it, you know, like, like we don't want to maybe eat things that smell like rotting meat because of safe, you know, because we're, it's likely more likely that we'll stay alive. Um, so I, I don't know too much about the science of all that. Um, But I do think, um, in my experience, there is something to just being around a wide variety of foods as you're growing up Mm -hmm. that maybe increases the the likelihood that you'll be able to be accepting of different kinds of flavors and different textures. Mm
2: -hmm, For sure. Um, Dina writes and say, my family's from Cairo, Egypt. The funkiest we get is a breakfast cheese called Mish, a cultured soft cheese that seemingly neglected in a dark place for weeks or years, until it rings with smell and flavor. It dates back to ancient Egyptian times, and it amazes me that archaeologists have found pottery with mish remains. Today is the third day of our Spring Pledge drive. We have many new thank you gifts to explore, but the best reason to support us is because you use and appreciate the service we provide. So, become a sustaining member at kqed.org slash donate. That's kqed.org slash donate. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Javier, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the things that, you know, maybe aren't meats, but are other parts of, uh, you know, Mexican cuisine that you feel like uh, might be unusual or, or worth talking about.
7: I mean, I think, uh, have, has anyone here heard of pulque? Pulque is uh, Mexico's mm-hmm. pre-Hispanic booze, pretty much. It's a, uh, it's. It was the form of alcohol derived from the century plant, which is, you know, the agave like plant
2: mm-hmm.
7: um, where you essentially you, quote unquote, castrate the stock. And then the sweet nectar that is in the in the base of the plant um, that starts to ferment as soon as it reaches air. It's essentially like like a boozy aloe vera juice um, and it's delicious, but the texture gets a little slimy.
2: And they've like cracked down on that, right? In Mexico City, there used to be lots of like pulquerias like and it's there over time there has been um kind of a move to more international beverages, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's, you know, if there's one thing, you know, we
7: take away from this conversation on, you know, quote-unquote weird foods, it's that it it's always going to be set to the bo- to the eye of the beholder. Um, you know, it's it's always going to be set to the gaze of whoever created this narrative. So, you know, I I encourage everyone to always question, you know, what, you know the, what. It, however, a food arrived to that category of being weird because, mm-hmm. or you know, for Mexico and pulque, the story goes is when breweries started to open up um, from Europe, um, they created a narrative that pulque was uh, fermented with uh, fecal matter, with human fecal matter, yes. um, and that uh, was created to sway the palates of you know Mexican nationals. Um, to choose beer as a more, you know, uh, crisper, cleaner beverage. So mm-hmm. because of that, um, there used to be a point um, when, like, you know, every other corner of Mexico City had like pulquerías. But now there are few and far in between because only a handful of them survived that mm-hmm. that false narrative that was created by you know by European breweries to to sway the people's palates. Interesting. Thank you so much I- for
4: that. And I just wanted to you know piggyback on that to sort of give the flip side of that, you know, which is just that I think this is always like a shifting target, like a shifting line. And I think you know like i i I often hear people talk about the quote unquote gentrification of certain previously mm. disparaged ingredients. Um, You know, we know that a lot of these different foods, especially these underutilized cuts of meat, came out of cultures, you know, that were born, you know, they were born out of poverty, basically. That's why people were using some of these ingredients. So then what happens when some of these ingredients get trendy and get embraced by like fine dining gourmet culture? And my favorite example of that is um, oxtails, which, uh, as many people know, in the US is now like absurdly expensive, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like $40 a pound or something like that. And it has gotten to the point that it has turned into one of my favorite memes um, on the internet, which is like anytime someone uh, posts something about an oxtail dish, someone will come on and they'll say like, my cousin ate oxtails once, and his toes swelled up to five times their normal size. And now he doesn't have a job anymore, and his wife left him, and his kids won't even talk to him. So, whatever you do, don't eat oxtails. And the idea is like trying to like de <laughs> exactly make like wealthy people who are trying to hop onto a trend uh, less likely to eat this thing. And and so I love that. And but I think it underscores the point. That none of this is sort of fixed in stone and it, the the goalpost is always changing. And so it's important to have
2: that perspective in mind. Yeah, um, we I just want to get to a couple of the last uh, comments here. One listener tweets, one of my favorites is the Sardinian cheese with live moth larva inside. Absolutely delicious when you get over the wiggling. Misty writes, I'm from Montana, and every year there was a roundup of calves to brand, inoculate, and castrate. At the end of the day, there would be a barbecue of the calf testicles, which were considered a delicacy called Rocky Mountain Oysters. Uh, Ernesto writes in to say I have friends who are horrified that my parents and grandparents allowed an eight-year-old to handle a knife and participate in cleaning a pig's head for cabeza tacos and other dishes and that we ate cow's tongue lengua I'm a vegetarian now but still fondly remember those experiences and found it all delicious and one listener writes in look this is for you please tell your listeners where to find dried cuttlefish and dried squid <laughs> I want to try them any Asian market <laughs> will yeah, yeah. sell them.
4: Yeah, just go to the snack section.
2: Got um, thank you all so much for joining us. We have been talking about these funky foods, ingredients that um, you know are very important in some cultures and unknown in others. Uh, we've been join, joined by Luke Sai, food editor with KQED Arts and Culture. Thanks for joining us, Luke, as always. Thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. Jennifer Wong, thank you for joining us and for this excellent essay, A Bay Area Love Letter to Durian, published on KQED. Thank you, Jennifer.
3: Thank you so much.
2: And Javier Cabral, editor with L.A. Taco and associate producer for Taco Chronicles on Netflix. Thank you. Thank you. Earlier, we were joined by Monica Martinez, founder and CEO of Don Bogito, a San Francisco company that makes edible insect snacks. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim.